This episode is sponsored by Blockbases, your platform to navigate Web3 safely. Remember the feeling you have when you connect your wallet to a new dApp or smart contract, not exactly sure if this is safe or not? Well, Blockbases will answer that question for you before making any detrimental mistakes, risking all your assets in your wallet. With Blockbases, you can easily review dApps and smart contracts that have either been audited or hacked. All dApps and smart contracts have been graded with a security score. And if you find yourself wondering, hmm, maybe there were some shady dApps I connected my wallet to in the past. Well, Blockbases makes it easy for you to scan your wallet and revoke access to any dApps or smart contracts that pose a risk to the funds in your wallet. To try Blockbases today, go on Blockbases.com. That is Blockbases.com. We'll dive right in. So welcome everyone to the Cosmos Club, where we tweet all things Cosmos. We summarize that typically in a weekly thread, and then we invite interesting, fascinating, hardworking builders of the Cosmos ecosystem to uh, spaces like these. And today we got you, John, from uh, Hyperlane, and you guys have been keeping busy with Eclipse also. Welcome to the space. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You know, um, it's a lot of fun. So maybe I'll start, I'll tell you a little bit about um, myself and how I got into crypto and uh, the team that we've put together here and the thing we're really trying to build. Definitely. Uh, with Hyperlane. So for myself, um, I am, I guess, on the in the small camp of crypto founders who don't have, uh, a, you know, a traditional engineering background, right? Like I, uh, I was coding a little bit when I was younger. I, you know, learned how to use HTML when I was like eight. You know, that was like this was the late '90s, um, and progressed through that. But somewhere in the teenage years, kind of lost interest and just like went about living. I didn't grow up in a place where like engineering so i grew up in israel where it does definitely have like a high-tech culture but uh i grew up in a shitty neighborhood in a small part of jerusalem so that was not like you know me and my friends were out playing soccer and playing video games we weren't like writing code um and after my military service just came back to the u.s didn't really know what to do and ended up at berkeley studying economics had a great time and really needed um really needed to make like a certain salary so I could help my parents financially. They were in a tough spot and ended up on Wall Street as a bond trader. And very recently, you know, like probably within my first year on Wall Street, uh, a good friend of mine from school, he goes like, this, we, were on a, uh, we were hanging out one weekend and he goes, hey, um, I think I want to put all my money into Ethereum. All my friends are doing it. I think it's like, I think it might be a good idea. Like, what do you think? Is this, is this stupid? And I was like, I don't know it's a good idea. I don't know it's a bad idea. But like, let's spend some time looking into it. Nice. This guy at the time, you know, like, uh, I was a little bit older. So I was like mid-20s. He's early 20s. We just, uh, you know, graduated the year before. And he's done well in business for himself. So like, I know he has a lot of cash sitting aside. And so for him, this is a big deal. And so we spend the weekend, we really look into Ethereum, we dig into it. And I'm like, this is the fucking coolest shit in the world. <laughs> like, nice. like I'd, I'd, I'd used Bitcoin before because I was trying to buy some stuff from people on Reddit and they would only accept Bitcoin. And I was like, all right, that's fine. This is cool. But I didn't feel like, I didn't get nabbed by it. You know, mm. uh, I, I love Bitcoin. It's the asset that I buy from, you know, my young daughter, etc. But uh, I, it did not like, 
nab my fascination like Ethereum did at that point in time. Mm-hmm. I'm someone who's been fucked by the banks a number of times. Yeah. And so I've had, even though I went to work on Wapid, I've always had like massive disdain for the banks. I really hate them uh, as an institution, right? Like the act of banking is fine. The way the banks manifest themselves today, I really don't like. Interesting. And so this idea... Can you yeah. talk, can you talk, I think that's super relevant, like especially these days. What does that, where does that hate come from? Like wait, Perhaps uh, just uh, unfold that a little bit. Yeah. You know, so in Israel, uh, the banks really run the country to some extent. Like they run the financial apparatus of the country. There's two big banks and then there's two like just, you know, one level below. But those two big banks, like one of them is owned by a very famous family. That family also owns the Miami Heat. They own, uh, you know, like these big cruise lines. And they really treat you like, you are lucky that they let you deposit money with them. It is their money once you deposit it. If you want it back, like you're going to have to go through some trouble. You're not just getting it back easily. It's their money. Uh, I'll give you an example. So I have an account there. And as a, uh, as a teenager, at one point we moved. Uh, my family left Israel and moved to the United States. Now I was paying my own phone bill. And I had a leftover charge of about $30, or sorry, for 30 shekels, so about worth about $8, call it at the time. A few years later, I come back, I'm like, you know, almost 18 now, about 17, I come back to finish high school, I'm on my own, uh, I left my parents' home, we stayed in the U.S., and I get arrested at the airport, and like, at first I thought, oh, maybe this is something related to the military service, probably like... They asked me to come in to do some type of meeting uh, with, uh, with the military while I was gone in the U.S. and I missed it. And now, like, there's some, uh, some error. Turns out, no, no. That, that $8 balance I had with the bank, they sent one letter to my grandparents' address. <laughs> and then after that, they took me to court. There was a court summons. Obviously, I don't show up because I'm not there. And I then get charged the equivalent of $10,000. Because <laughs> that's like the legal fee. And so now I'm delinquent in paying. This has been over a year since that court date had happened. I obviously have no idea of it. Even though they technically know I left the country. Mm. And I get to, like, I had a few thousand dollars with me to, like, you know, keep me going for a few months until I could get a job. And obviously I go into massive debt as soon as I land. <laughs> uh, and that was, like, the first really bad run-in that I had with a bank. A few years later, yeah. I do my military service, and when you finish your military service in Israel, you get um, the, the, the state gives you this little grant. Think of it like an airdrop for participating in the idea. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's bigger based on what your service was. I don't know, you know, I, when I left the idea, I was 20 years old. I wanted to get back to the U.S. really quickly. I didn't think about it. Five years later, same thing. Get a letter to my grandfather. Says, hey, John has six weeks to take his money out or it gets nationalized and it's not a lot of money you know it's probably like two thousand dollars worth but it's, mm. a, it's a lot to me mm. so i go to the bank and i try to get it at this point i am an israeli citizen but i don't live there anymore so i don't have an address and i certainly don't have bank accounts and it took me almost to the last day of those six weeks of me going to that bank every couple of days to get my own money out and at first it was like well, you need, you need to have an account to take the money. No problem. I'll open an account. Oh, well, you know, you told us you don't live here, so you can't open an account. 
shit. Okay, so what did? Well, if you find someone like a family member, give them a power of attorney, they can open the account. They can cash the check for you. All right, so I go and do that. And then, then basically every time they found an excuse until almost <laughs> on the last day, I was like, listen, I don't have a lot in the world, but like I will do everything in my power to like destroy this bank. I will like make a big deal out of this. I will go, you know, knock on the door of every lawyer in this country and sue you guys and like just spend the next 10 years of my life in this. And I'm just like telling this directly to the bank manager. Hmm. And it just so happened that that same day, like the regional, you know, like that guy, the guy who ran that specific branch, his boss was in the office and he hears me like, you know, raging like this. And then he's like, what the fuck is going on here? Let's just figure this out. And turns out they could have done that from the start. But that's, you know, mm. then I come to the U.S. and I'm like, you know, I fall in love with the banks here because I go to the bank in the U.S. They give you chocolates. They give you coffee. They treat you real nice, unlike the mean <laughs> banks in Israel. And then a few years later, I don't know if you're aware, so Wells Fargo, one of the four largest banks in the United States, bank mm. I thought very highly of it was our bank. They treat us real nice. Turns out they were opening fake accounts for their customers. Yeah. And yeah. those were free accounts, right? So these accounts were paid. And... I'm, you know, I'm naive at the time. I'm working as a waiter, as a bartender. Like, I don't know what the, like, you know, like money this means. All I know is every now and then the bank would charge me thirty dollars. And like in Israel, the banks charge you money. It's not, you know, it's not unusual. They have all, you know, Israeli and Swedish banks have the most commissions at over four hundred types of bank commissions. So seeing my Wells Fargo account charge thirty dollars didn't seem that unusual. Until a couple years later, we hear about this massive scandal in the Los Angeles area, which is where I was living, where these accounts were opened fraudulently. And it turns out Wells Fargo stole about $800 uh, from me, all in. I was their customer. Actually, sadly, still am their customer because it's so hard <laughs> to unwind your bank account, especially if it's tied to like family accounts. Yeah. So for all of these, we're like, these are very personal experiences. All of them really affected me. They just made me realize, like, you really are kind of like their hostage. When you start, like, in this traditional financial system, you have no opt-out. You know, the best you can do is go to another bank. And they hold you by the balls just like the ones that you are leaving. And the banks know this. Basically, like, if you think of where, where do you get the worst service imaginable, it's in every setting where the service provider knows you actually don't have an alternative. So a lot of times, where do people have like really awful interactions? It's on the plane once it's taken off, because like you have to get off, right? Like they're not—they know you have no other choice. They don't give a fuck. Uh, in the U.S., like healthcare, a lot of times you get really, really terrible experiences. Why? Because they know you don't have any other option. Similarly, with the banks and crypto, to me represents the first chance we've had at an opt-out. You know, it's mm -hmm. like a now you have another option. Now it's like you know. What? fuck you guys, I can go somewhere else and I can do this on my own and I can kind of own my own destiny in that regard. And that is why when I was reading like the Ethereum paper and reading more about it that weekend, I was just like, this is the coolest fucking thing in the world. <laughs> and I go back to work on Monday and I'm like, you know, it's like I had a religious awakening and I tell everyone that Monday morning, this is like the trading desk in Morgan Stanley, my office. And I'm like, oh my God. You guys don't get it. We're, all, we're none of us are gonna have a job soon. Like this thing, it's coming. It's gonna be huge. And they're like, "What? You're not gonna have jobs because of the algorithms?" Because like we were always talking about how 
Yeah. Uh, you know, traders AI. like us have been replaced, yeah, by like trading systems. You know, the all the all the old traders used to say, like, ah, you know, Goldman Sachs used to have six hundred traders in New York City on the equities floor, and now they're down to two. And they're like, all right, yeah, it's coming. But we specifically traded a very, you know, opaque and exotic, you know, type of assets. Or like, it'll take a while before it's coming for us. I was like, no, no, it's not the algorithms. It's this thing, Ethereum. Yeah. You have to hear about it. And for the next two years, I become like the office laughing stock. I'm the guy who's really into crypto. And they all just really make fun At Morgan Stanley or? At Morgan Stanley, yeah. And yeah. like, I try to get the company to do more crypto things and they were really nice about it, but they were making fun of me. Like they would like <laughs> boss people totally random, you know, like division heads who had no idea who they are. My boss would like tell them how you know funny it is that he has a guy in his in his unit who's like mining crypto and what an idiot he is. But thanks to Morgan Stanley, I was very thankful for that time. I got my first job in crypto. I joined the San Francisco hedge fund that got very famous in the OH financial crisis and the guy there was always open to new ideas, and I was their first hire working on crypto and got to do some really cool stuff there, like became one of the first investors in Solana, uh, worked with, you know, this is like late 17, uh, 2018, and got to really do a bunch of cool stuff. Like, you know, some of it in retrospect doesn't look as cool. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, we were we were there when uh, Alameda and FTX started. And now that's like, shit, we were there when FTX and Alameda started. That's not so good. Um, <laughs> and from there, went to work at Galaxy, if you're familiar with Mike Novogratz's firm. Yeah. Uh, my partner and I there ran the investment business. Again, got to do a lot of cool stuff. Like one of the first investors in things like One Inch and, uh, and Ramp and Chaos Labs. and. Uh, hmm. Really had just you know phenomenal uh, time and just wanted to keep make crypto a bigger thing. But through all of that, like it seemed you know from coming from a non-engineering background, but someone who was always tech savvy, you know, got got an internet connection when I was six in 1996, and it was just like the coolest thing in the world. And then you realize, wait a second, some of my friends who are on a different ISP, we can't connect. But that was solved very early within like the first year of me having a connection. I went from not being able to directly interface with people on a different ISP to connecting with them. So then when I learned that like, oh, the blo like blockchains can't talk to each other, I was like, ah, they'll figure that out. They'll figure that out really quick. <laughs> and Beautiful. Really, you know, and that how, was kind of like the impetus to start Hyperland. How, uh, how, I have to ask, how did it go with, the, with your friend on the Ethereum bet? Did he actually... Long. Yeah. He did do. He did. He, he he didn't put everything in it, uh, but you know he has a nice house now. He's very happy about it. It worked out great. Because mm -hmm. um, this is uh, this is, I want to say like, but we didn't do it. He didn't do it right away. Probably in a few months. So it's probably no later than like September of 2016. So it worked out. Um, you know, probably sold most of it at some point and. He he didn't like you know he didn't like top tick or anything but he he was very happy about it he's since you know done some other things in crypto I never got in full time but you know he was never interested in doing that and mm. yeah we got we I'll, I'll say is to some extent we got very lucky because like you know you could have read that paper and then get a little bit greedier which I have I'm sure other people who are listening in have and then like yeah you know this Ethereum thing it seems like it seems 
great, but it seems too expensive. I don't know, like $7 for an Ethereum? I don't know about that. It seems too high. Uh, and then you might be like, well, this other thing here, I'm reading about it on this subreddit. They say it's like two cents. Maybe I should buy the two cents one. Yeah, let's try uh, that one. Yeah, so we definitely got lucky in that regard that, it, you know, his other friends had, oh, you know, only bought Ethereum. And that he was like, oh, no, this is the one they're telling me I should buy. Yeah, I think I think most people have stories like that. Even Vitalik, the founder of Ethereum, he's probably bought some shit coin that uh, he regrets dearly, I'm sure. For sure. But... I can tell you I have. I, my biggest steaming pile of crap that I ever bought, which funny enough had a resurgence in the last four months thanks to AI, is this thing I bought in 2017 called Deep Brain Chain. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Never I heard of this. It. I've been in crypto you're for ages, never heard of it. <laughs> you're not missing out. Yeah, it's supposed to be like some, you know, it's a chain for deep brains. It was something with like, some, I was like, oh, I love AI. AI is cool. Hmm. And yeah, uh, yeah, deep brain chain had a resurgence when ChatGPT came out. I don't recommend hmm. anybody buy it. Uh, but, you know, if you <laughs> not did, financial you advice. Can, yeah, you did. You and I can reminisce over. Our dumb, uh, dumb investment decisions. Yeah, I think in order for you to make it in crypto from an investment perspective, you have to make a shit ton of bad for sure, calls. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I have I have a, a close friend who runs one of the better trading firms in the industry and also like has a very popular Twitter account. And he's been in crypto as long as anybody. And this guy is rounding out, I want to say, close to 10 years now. And he goes, like, you, you, you just got to feel enough pain like you can't make it you can't really make it in crypto without feeling enough pain mm. um you know you gotta make some dumb mistakes you gotta get rugged a few times yeah just part it's part of the cycle it's like uh the you know it's like the wheel of life like in the Lion King. diamonds are formed under intense pressure <laughs> right so uh that's that's what it's all about but hey, so let's uh, let's get back on track a bit on the, on Hyperlane, which you just know, mentioned. Um, <laughs> that's okay. But um, you just mentioned in the at the very end um, of your personal story that you uh, that you started working on and with Hyperlane. Talk to us about what Hyperlane is for the uninitiated who has no idea. You know, tell us about Hyperlane as if we are five, maybe ten years old, Absolutely. just to cut you some slack. Perfect. So. Uh... Like I said, it was strange that these really cool internet computers can't talk to each other. And it's like, wait, so if I'm on one of them and you're on another, it's like we're in different fucking galaxies. That seemed not right. And uh, I was in the Bay Area near near uh, Berkeley where there was a lot of Cosmos people and I went to school there. And suddenly I started hearing about this Cosmos thing. And they have this thing in Cosmos called IBC. And this seems like the first way for anyone to connect a blockchain with another one. And I really want to work on it. I really want to like learn more. Hmm. And then time goes by and you learn more and you realize that IBC is amazing. But to be as amazing as it is, it takes some trade-offs. And those trade-offs are quite restrictive. It works incredibly well within a defined set. Like, you know, it has to be something... Like an IBC compliant chain has fast finality, has a has light client verification. Within that, you can get great interoperability. Okay, so what is Hyperlane? Hyperlane is 
the first really, really permissionless interoperability layer. And what it is, it's like a spiritual extension of IBC. So a couple years ago when all of us came together to work on it, mm-hmm. um, we were thinking IBC is like the best starting point you could ask for. How, what do you have to do to tweak it so that you're, you're, you're now making some different trade-offs, right? Like you lose some of the beautiful security guarantees that you get with IBC because of that light client verification, but mm. you get more extensibility. So we're trading off, you know, a perceived measure of security for additional extensibility. And that's what Hyperlane is. So really what it is, it's a way that anyone can connect any uh, blockchain environment and then customize the, like what secures that connection. Hmm. So if you create another chain today, and when I say chain, in that I'm encompassing a true layer one, I'm encompassing what's known in the like Ethereum parlance as a rollup, and I'm encompassing an app chain. I treat all of those as something I call chain. It's just like it's a place to do blockchain computations. Hmm. And you can connect those different environments with Hyperlink. And most importantly, unlike other popular interoperability protocols, except for IBC, this one is permissionless, right? Like you don't have to go and convince the team behind some interoperable, like behind Hyperlink to add your chain. You can do it yourself. Uh, And once you've done that, you decide like, what should the security model be here? Like, should I use a multi-sig? Should I use proof of stake? Should I use an optimistic connection? Should I use all three? It's really mm-hmm. up to you as the initiator of that connection. Beautiful. And how, I think a lot of people, obviously in our community, we are very focused on Cosmos. Most people are in love, I would say, sometimes with the, the Cosmos Rightfully ecosystem, so. the Cosmos tech. <laughs> Rightfully so, exactly. So um, a quick question that I can also see coming from the community, and I'll just blend in community questions as we go on, by the way. Please. Um, but how does that compare to IBC? You you mentioned IBC just briefly, but perhaps just uh, elaborate to us how Hyperlane uh, compares to, to IBC, which most people know about. Of course. So the first thing to, to do is think of Hyperlane as a complement or an extension of IBC. Mm-hmm. Think of all of these as like road systems. You know, in our, in our language, we talk about the interchain highway. So what's the thing, like roads usually end at, a, at, at, you know, at one destination. And if you want to get somewhere else, there might be another road. Mm-hmm. So how does it compare? The place where uh, you can draw the easiest comparison to IBC is kind of like what we were talking about before. IBC gives you very strong security guarantees, but it also has a rigid framework of what can work within its confines. So in IBC, to, for a chain to work with IBC and get these strong security guarantees, it needs to have fast finality and it needs to have light client verification because IBC is a, what we call uh, in the interoperability world, it's natively verified, hmm. meaning that when you transfer something between uh, A and B, or actually let's use, let's use hard examples. When you're transferring something between Osmosis and Juno, yeah. You're only trusting that the consensus on Juno was done correctly, that the consensus on osmosis was done correctly. Right. So, only, you know, and like presumably if you're going to be interacting with those chains anyway, 
you're fine with that, right? Like, they're going from, you know, if you're going from city to city, probably you're fine with both cities. That's a core thing about IBC. It's what makes it beautiful. Um, mm. The limitation there is that for this to work, the cities, the chains need to have some features that uh, comply with this construction. Hyperlink basically removes that restriction mm. and lets you uh, bring in chains that don't comply. It's why we can have EVMs. It's why we can have uh, Solana C-level chains. And it's why we can also have, like Hyperlink exists as a Cosmos SDK module and be applied to chains that support IBC. We don't have that restriction. But what does that mean? It means that now you are adding an element of external verification. So now when you have an interaction, you need to similarly trust, you know, A and B, the, the source and the destination chains, hmm. but also a C that is like, you know, the road itself, the channel. Like, how is this information secured? Yeah. And so in Hyperlane, that C part, it's modular, meaning it's not like a one-size-fits-all and everybody gets the same thing. As I mentioned before, it can take the form of, uh, of staking. It can take the form of an optimistic module that anyone can observe and then veto if it doesn't look kosher. It can take the form of a multi-sig. And it really can take the form of anything. It's just you, We let arbitrary logic be used to define the conditions for uh, interchain security. And so what this means is that uh, it can incorporate other modes. So like if we do get light line verification uh, on certain chain, that can be used to secure the messages. So anywhere we are connecting a path that has light line verification, such that you wouldn't need to trust anything else, that can be that, the, the thing securing that hyperlane path. Uh, so that's why, like, uh, you can think about it as something that extends or is a complement to IBC, because once the hyperlane uh, SDK module is live, Cosmos chains can incorporate that module, and now they can use IBC wherever it's applicable, and they can use hyperlane to connect everywhere where it's not applicable. And think of it as like two distinct road systems that at one point, like once you get, once you need to go somewhere that is IBC compatible, you can basically ride from Ethereum to say Juno, and then you can go on the IBC roads from Juno once you're there. Hmm. Beautiful. And how, just uh, to bring it home, I guess, because a lot of people I can see also is asking about Axelor. How does it compare to Axelor? Maybe it's a, a question a bit left field, uh, but... No, 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 it's a, it's a common question for us. We really like the team at XR. We, we admire a lot of the great work that they've done. And there are some key differences with XR. I say the first difference with XR, I just, uh, and this is not specific to XLR, so it's not like a, a this on them in any regard. It's just, a, it's true on, uh, for any interoperability protocol that is not IBC. Hyperlane is the only one that is truly permissionless. So if you want uh, support of under other interoperability protocols on your chain, whether it's a layer one, a rollup, or an app chain, you need to convince that team that your chain is worth supporting. Uh, this is normally because they have kind of like monolithic security models 
<laughs> where everyone is opted into the same model. So this is the key difference. Uh, and again, it does not just apply to Axelar, so I don't want to single them out. They're incredible uh, people. We really do think the world of them. Like if anyone's doing, uh, if there's anyone in our space who does, does things right, it's like that team. Beyond that, there are a few like, I'd say differences in, in, in preferences. Hyperlink does not have its own chain, which has advantages and disadvantages. Axelar has its own chain, again, which like lies on the other side of those advantages yeah. and disadvantages. Yeah. What you get when you have your own chain is you get a single place to host all of the staking uh, asset when you secure connectivity through, um, you know, through proof of stake, like through an economic security. Now, this has advantages and disadvantages. The first advantage is super clear. Now, instead of fragmenting, let's say if you have a million dollars securing interchain communication, they're all in the same place securing all the channels. That's a nice advantage. Versus like, you know, if you spread them for in 10 places, now you don't have a million in each place. You have at best, you know, like 100,000 in each place. So that's not as nice. But what's the disadvantage of doing this? The disadvantage is that doing it, um, concentrating your stake in the same place requires an honest majority assumption. Well, what's that mean? That sounds like one of those terms you read in a white paper and you kind of, you kind of gloss over and you're like, ah, it's not important. <laughs> uh, what it really means is... Big so brain coin or whatever. Yeah, yeah, deep brain chain. You got to put that <laughs> in the deep brain chain to like, figure out what the hell that means. But... So, you want, like, what is an honest majority? Well, it means that, like, what's securing the system? What is preventing the agents that you have to trust, the validators, from misbehaving? Well, what's preventing them from doing that is that they have money on the line, and they'll get slashed, right? We'll take that money away from them if they do things um, that are improper. So, imagine you are sending something from Ethereum to Juno. And the stake lives on a different chain, right? It doesn't live on uh, Ethereum. It doesn't live on Juno. So if the validator kind of screws with you, how does the chain where the stake lives, how does it know that it needs to punish that guy? What, how does that information travel? Well, it travels through the same system that cheated you. Now, hopefully... All the other validators are good guys. And so they don't want, uh, they want to exclude any bad actors. So they isolate the one or two or however many that try to cheat you. And they say, no, no, no. We see what he did on Ethereum. We're cutting his stake. So cut his stake. Send it, send it to zero. But what happened if all of them are in on it? Hmm. Right now, the, basically what it means for it to be in the same place is that the judge, jury, and executioner are the same person. Hmm. Uh, because the way that it's evaluated, the way that it's communicated, and actually executing that sentence, it's all in the same party. So if all the validators in a system like this, or at least a majority of them, are in on the crime, there's nothing you can do. Right? There's nothing you can do to get them to punish themselves. Like, if they are cheating you and they're like colluding to cheat you, 
They're not going to punish themselves. They're, you know, they're the criminals. Yeah. So that's the big disadvantage with this. But, like, to the credit of any of these systems, it hasn't really happened yet. There's no reason to believe that it will happen because what we're discovering is that unlike, you know, I think the original vision for some of these systems, these families are not really small-time shops. They're, for the most part, they're businesses, right? They're people with families to feed and reputations on the line. And so, they don't, like, we don't see collusion at this scale, even though sometimes it makes economic sense to do it. So I think even though this is like a theoretical major disadvantage of this design, I don't think in practice it's actually shown itself to be that vulnerable. Um, but so those are the key differences. And then beyond that, there's some like small differences. So like some people might like, you know, our interface. They might think it's nicer. Some people might like the XLR interface. They might think yeah. that one's nicer. So I guess yeah. in summary, the differences are permissionless nature. How does that happen it's because of our modular security stack where you can choose uh, how to secure your connectivity and then when it comes to economic security that both uh, hyperlink and XLR intend to leverage um, XLR uses the concentrated stake method which again has advantages and disadvantages hyperlink for at least for now is electing to use the uh, non-concentrated stake where the stake lives on each chain instead of living in a single chain. Uh, and then again, some minor differences and, you know, some people might like our interface better. Some people probably like their interface better. Beautiful. For someone that uh, doesn't have an engineering background, I think you do a very good job at explaining all the technical details. So uh, props to you, man. Um, I hear that. And I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you another nugget here because um, I can see also uh, a lot of people is is um, is asking about the whole modularity stack that you or modular stack that you guys have, uh, and particularly asking about the comparison now that we are comparing different uh, projects and protocols, the comparison to Celestia because I think there's a lot of things uh, or inspiration whatever you want to call ah, it beautiful. where where you guys uh, where you guys are sort of having at least the same approach to things, uh, to modularity, building a modular stack where different chains with different consensus mechanisms and compilers and all that stuff, like you say, you can you, you can basically um, uh, be compatible to EVM-based chains, to Cosmos tenement chains. Like, it doesn't really matter the consensus there underneath. Um, right. So yeah, perhaps talk to us about the uh, one, modularity stack, uh, and then two, how it compares to Celestia. Ah, so I'm actually going to answer those in reverse orders just to make sure that we clarify things for the listeners. No problem. No problem. So Hyperlane and Celestia try to accomplish very different things. Celestia tries to become the best data availability layer, and Hyperlane wants to become the best interoperability layer. And those two things complement each other very well and work together very well. It's really why we've had such a wonderful cooperation with Celestia and stay tuned to hear more about that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, if you've been following along with us, I'm sure you've, you've already seen some of that stuff, but yeah. Celestia lets, uh, Celestia makes it easy for application for, sorry, for rollups uh, to really become sovereign by choosing their own data availability layer. They could use Celestia as a data availability solution. They can through Celestia use others uh, like Ethereum, but that's what it does. And they've also, 
they're they've made it open source and they want it to be kind of like community driven but they've created this incredibly cool thing called rollkit and rollkit is a framework for people to build their own rollups and so between these two things uh, there is a massive cooperation opportunity for hyperlane and celestia especially through rollkit is by being the go-to interoperability option for these new rollups because what good is a rollup that you can just deploy, deploy easily, you can create it, no one can stop you, but then once you've created it, it can't connect with anything. Kind of like, you know, you, you, you've put out this island in the middle <laughs> of, of the ocean, but it has no, you know, no airport, no roads, it can't connect with any piece of mainland. And so in that sense, Celestia and Hyperlane are actually like very symbiotic. Hmm. Uh, now we get to the modular uh, security stack so Celestia is probably uh, I think well actually Celestia and Cosmos you know Cosmos didn't use this language but it has always promoted this concept uh, of like modular chains of separating some different elements in the stack and Hyperlane now brings the same concept to interoperability. We've talked before about how different interoperability protocols often have kind of like a one-size-fits-all security model. They, you know, I think part of it comes from like, you know, the uh, academic roots of crypto where it's about proving things on paper and being really, mm -hmm. really right and yeah. kind of having, you know, infinite wisdom and correctness in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but look, we've this team. They're all, all very, very uh, crypto native. We've seen basically everything that was sold to us as bulletproof in our time has broken and been replaced because some smart kid somewhere figured out how to break it, how to twist it. And so the idea of asking developers to trust that we know how to design the singular best security option never seemed reasonable. Never seemed right. And so from the get-go, instead of having a one-size-fits-all, this is going to be the security model for the long-term type of approach, we wanted to see how can we separate the product from the security, right? So not treating those two things as tightly coupled. The product is an interface that someone can use to communicate between any type of chain. Hmm. The security is definitely part of the product, but insofar as like how you use that product, it doesn't have to be that, uh, that tightly coupled. Just build it in a way that's modular, that lets you, as the, uh, as the user of said product, you know, as the developer that integrates it, choose how you want to do that. And maybe hmm. sometimes you want to use something like proof of stake. And maybe sometimes you want to use something like an optimistic model. And maybe sometimes you want to use a multi-sig. And it might be the case that for a single app, you also want to use all three, but just at different times in the different contexts. You know, we talked about the banks before. Everyone's probably had this type of interaction when they like walk into their bank and they just need to make a small withdrawal, say like $50. And the bank just wants their PIN number. But then one day they have to make a bigger withdrawal. You know, they have a big purchase coming up. They go and they need to withdraw something like $2,000. 
And now the bank starts asking, the teller starts asking you questions. They're like, oh, can you tell me about the last three transactions that you've done? What's your date of birth? Can you show me an ID? What's your mother's name? Uh, and what's the bank doing there? The bank is observing <laughs> the context of your actions, and it's ratcheting up or down security, uh, security measures based on what you're trying to do. You can do this same idea with Hyperlink. So in your same app, if someone's trying to make a very small transaction, you can choose to go through a faster but maybe less secure path. Where if they're trying to go do you know higher and higher value transactions, you can force those transactions through different security paths. And that to us really what it means to have like a modular security stack. It's giving you as the integrator ultimate power and control over how your app should just interface with the system. What should it accept? What should it deny? Hmm. Interesting. And perhaps uh, just to dig a little deeper, deeper into the tech. Um, so we did a thread on uh, on Hyperlane. I think it was yesterday or two days ago. I can't remember exactly. But um, we sort of tried to explain you on a high job, level. I have to say, for someone that didn't like, you know, you didn't get any information from us, you just got it from like the doc. So that was very impressive. So. <laughs> Thanks. I, I mean, it's not me doing the threats, but uh, our team, our researchers are, yeah, they've done research on quite a few chains at this point. Um, so uh, they, they know what they're doing, that's for sure. But um, but also the, the stack that uh, that you guys have uh, in a very broad, high-level terms is, is sort of what we did, at least in our thread. We split in three, so there's permissionless deployment, there's sovereign consensus, and there's warp uh, routes. Can you talk to us just on a high level, of course, um, about these three? And then, of course, people can go into the documentation and all that if they're more interested in uh, knowing more about it. But just to know a bit, bit more about the technical setup here. Excellent. So let's start with Sovereign Consensus. And then a heads up to anyone who will read further. Sovereign Consensus is the original name that we gave to our modular security stack. It's everything I just described insofar as being able to customize and define different security and use it dynamically based on the context of what your users are doing. That's what sovereign consensus refers to. Uh, so underneath sovereign consensus are the individual modules, and we refer to those as interchain security modules. And so earlier when I was saying, oh, you could do proof of stake, you could do an optimistic model, you could do uh, a multisig, each one of those is expressed as an individual interchain security module. And in the docs, you'll sometimes see those referred to by their full name as interchain security modules or uh, by their shorthand as ISMs. And if you look through the docs today, really we, we uh, this was a mistake on our part, realized that uh, giving this kind of like a distinct name like sovereign consensus ultimately just meant that some people were confused and so now we just re keep referring to it as the modular security stack. It's more generic, less memorable, but that's okay. Um, so that's really what that part of the Hyperlane stack does. It is the ability uh, uh, provided to developers to choose how to secure their messaging pathways. Um, and every time you integrate something with Hyperlane, you choose, or sorry, you define how you're sending those messages and where you're sending them to, and then you're defining how you receive them. And when you define how you receive them, you also pick 
I want to work with chains A, B, and C, and I want to use the security modules that look like uh, this, this, and that. And the cool thing, this one, still a bit hard to do, not as well documented as it needs to be. Uh, apologies for that. You can actually write your own. So not, this is not, you know, not something we'd recommend that uh, beginners do. You know, if you feel very confident, definitely you can do this. But you can actually write your own security modules with Hyperlane. This is something that we wanted to leave in there so that um, as the ecosystem grows, people have a way to participate and even benefit by creating these, uh, you know, ever-improving security models. And hopefully that creates like a robust market for different security options. Because, you know, if you think of like what we see with the power of crypto, it's the power of a large, engaged, open-source community is so much stronger than any single team, even if that team is, you know, amazing in their, uh, in their capabilities. So that's on sovereign consensus or a modular security stack. Onwards to something maybe even a little more interesting, what we call warp routes. So warp routes are Hyperlane's uh, unique take on the concept of token bridging. Token bridging generally takes the form of a omnibus contract, meaning the term omnibus means to me like it's one contract for all the assets and all the users. And everyone deposits their assets into that one. And then it spits out the wrapped asset somewhere else. So how is a warp route unique? What are the defining features of Hyperlink? We talked about them earlier, right? First, it's permissionless nature. Anyone can put it anywhere. Second, the modular security stack. Anyone can choose how to secure their messages and they can do it dynamically based on the context. A warp route gets to inherit those properties because it is built using Hyperlink. So instead of a single bridge that is uh, owned and operated by some team, you get to have uh, kind of like individualized uh, bridges per asset. So say you are like, uh, you create, you know, uh, an asset for the Cosmos Club, you would make a warp route for that asset specifically. Now anyone can use that asset and that asset can be taken to any chain you'd like it to be added to. If there isn't hyperlane on a chain that you would like to see that asset arrive at, you can put hyperlane there yourself. Oh, and what should the security be for this like individual bridge, this warp route, as we call it? You get to choose. It could be a multi-sig that you define. It could be like your community members. It could be an optimistic model. It could be like a staking model where any asset can be staked. You know, you could have like restaked uh, atoms, Osmo, you know, take your pick. Hmm. Uh, and that's really what warp routes are. So instead of operating a traditional bridge, we wanted to do something that, again, really leverages from the unique capabilities of Hyperlink. And where are warp routes most effective? Well, the same place where Hyperlink is most effective. In this world of many chains, where you get many layer ones, many rollups, many app chains, where you're just now out there spinning your new chain, or your, you know, your, your new rollup, 
you put hyperlane on it, you put a warp route into it, and now without having to ask anybody else, without having to depend on anybody else, users can bring in assets and liquidity into your new chain. Mm-hmm. And you can do that basically like all in the same day. And that is kind of like, you know, from my perspective, there's a little bit of magic there. And maybe you can tell how like, I guess all my experiences of just having to depend on other institutions to get things made us, you know, made me personally much more interested in working on something where you don't have to depend on anybody. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of like as further out on the spectrum of permissionless as something can be in the world of interoperability. Definitely, man. Definitely. Well done. It's, uh, it's not always easy to, um, to work out all the technical details and explain it on a space like this where you have no visuals, no nothing, just your voice. But uh, great job, man. And again, for anyone who wants to uh, go out and, uh, and, and read more and understand better how the technology is set up with Hyperlane, go on uh, docs.hyperlane.xyz and uh, they, can, they can do a deep dive, even try, try some things out. So uh, let's talk about what's on the horizon for Hyperlane. Um, you guys obviously are hitting the streets, if you will. You are going live with uh, with your technology. You're starting to get people to adopt your technology. But what can people look forward to? What's the sort of short-term roadmap? How does that look like? Excellent. So short-term roadmap, there are a few things that like, engin- so I guess, Let's start with the shortest of short terms. In this upcoming week, uh, let's say if you heard you heard us talk today and you're like, "Oh shit, this is cool! I can't wait to try and put Hyperlane on like my own, uh, another chain." Maybe wait till tomorrow. Uh, we are about to push an update later today that will make the experience of deploying Hyperlane yourself much easier than it was in the last few weeks. Uh, just a bunch of quality of life improvements. So that's coming. That's more on the engineering side. A few other things that you can look forward to. That experience of deploying Hyperlane and working with it and deploying your own roadmap, that's going to continuously improve. Really, every few weeks, you'll see noticeable quality of life improvements. As more people use it and we run into more edge cases, we will get more and more feedback about how to improve the system. So that's in the works that's happening, you can see a steady drip of improvements. You're going to be seeing new, new security modules coming live in the next few months. Uh, so, like we talked about with um, with the staking module, with the optimistic module, those will be uh, going live sometime by the summer. And really what they'll mean is that Hyperlane can be used, you know, like that you can use uh, things like restake teeth, right? Like a ton of people are excited about what Eigenlayer is doing with restaking, right? So bringing that same concept over to interoperability. Stay Definitely. For that. Uh, on the non-engineering side, things that are basically like, adva- you know, advancements in the penetration of Hyperlane, there are a number of, you know, you read about our cooperation with Eclipse most recently. Uh, expect to hear a few more about a few more uh, interactions like that. We can't, you know, some of these are have to stay confidential until they come out. But several uh, other major players in the roll-up space um, 
are coming. And then, again, like this is uh, predominantly a Cosmos community. The work on Hyperlane as a Cosmos SDK module has already started, and the first kind of sprouts of that work should again be visible in the next few months. We have partnered with who we think are some of the best builders in the Cosmos world. And so that'll be more formally released uh, sometime in the next few weeks. So stay tuned for that as well. Definitely. A lot of things on the horizon. Like most other people in Cosmos these days. It's, we, are, uh, so... we are keeping busy, you know, like the world's moving fast. And then last thing I'll say is um, if you're based on the eastern part of the U.S. or if you're based in London, uh, we do work in person. But if you're interested in a really cool opportunity, uh, don't don't hesitate to reach out. We're looking for like A players from uh, of all kinds. So just let us know if this sounds interesting to you uh, in any way, either because you'd like to work on it as a builder, or if you'd like to work uh, to improve it as joining, you know, the Hyperlane core team. Just drop me a line. Exactly. And where where can they, uh, if people are interested in uh, looking up your job post and all that stuff, where should they go? Just Excellent. to make sure. So hyperlane.xyz and then follow to our job board. Um, we're also posted on a number of like Cosmos adjacent job boards like the Celestia job board. Um, and obviously, like just jump in our Discord. You'll see, you know, in the developer channel, you'll see just a bunch of people who are experimenting with Hyperlane in different ways. You can learn from them. And, and of course, always feel free to uh, DM me. I don't check Twitter all the time, but probably within at least a couple of days, you'll get a response from me. So do not hesitate to, to DM. I'm really not that hard to reach. Probably a good idea for your own mental health to uh, not check Twitter all the time. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so uh, keep, keep doing that. I, I can highly recommend but um, let's uh, let's allow ourselves to, to to dream a bit here, and um, and sort of uh, see you know a bit further into the future where, let's say, all the the stuff on your roadmap is falling into place. You're building a stellar team. Things are really moving. Cosmos is growing. Uh, we're in a new bull market, perhaps. If you want to include that in the uh, sort of optimistic mm -hmm. overview or, or outlook. So how how does Hyperlane look like, uh, let's say five years from now? How do people cool. use it? Excellent like how question. how does it sort of, you know, encompass all the all the different stuff happening in Cosmos and beyond, of course. So the way it encompasses, really, what it is, I think the Cosmos vision, uh, you know, so some nerd talk that you guys could use to impress your uh, less nerdy friends if you want. So when it comes to blockchains, there were two visions for like scaling them. One was like we're going to create one really big, really strong computer. And that's what's known as like the monolithic vision. And then there was, we're going to create a lot of smaller computers. And we're going to stack them horizontally. And we are going to kind of let them communicate when they need to. And that's the Cosmos vision. And that is really now, you know, the, the Ethereans don't call it horizontal scaling like the Cosmos people used to. They call it the modular blockchain thesis, but it's the exact same idea. And the important part of this idea, and this is why IBC was always critical to the Cosmos roadmap and vision, is because this form, this modular blockchain thesis, horizontal scaling, it does not work 
without permissionless interoperability. So Zucky, you know, one of our original designers, he gets that. The cosmonauts, they get that. The Ethereum people did not, this was not like a given to them. They did not understand it. They're now slowly starting to see it. So what does is, what is the world look like five years from now? Well, there's three or four digits worth of rollups and app chains. And of course, they need an easy communication mechanism, right? If all of them had to wait a week to go back to L1 to have communication, that's not going to work. So in this world, Hyperlane is the dominant form of communication between non-IBC compliant chains. While the IBC compliant chains has also grown, and you kind of see like this network graph where uh, Hyperlane is like the connective tissue between the IBC world and the non-IBC world. And IBC is like the you know dominant way of communicating on the right side of that map. Hyperlane, the right dominant, uh, the dominant on the left side of that map. And just there's like, you know, people are building their different applications in these smaller and smaller computers, these smaller and smaller environments. But it's made seamless because of things like IBC and Hyperlane. And really what it means is that when you're moving around, you know, you'll never have to think twice about when you want to move an asset between Juno and Ethereum or Ethereum and Osmosis or Arbitrum and Kujira, right? Like, hmm. That just happens much more seamlessly. Yeah. And the uh, user experience doesn't look like you moving assets around. Because think about it, you moving assets around kind of feels a little bit like if you went to go buy something like on Amazon, and when you went to do that, they said, well, we're gonna, you're going to need to send some Amazon bucks in here first. And you don't do that. You just have a credit card and it charges. Uh, but that's kind of how blockchains work right now. You got to have the right type of bucks to mm-hmm. spend uh, on every chain. Hyperlane is a tool that lets the applications handle that for you. Interesting. And so that's another thing that five years from now, right? Like all this communication happens on the backs of protocols like IBC and Hyperlane. But as users, we have a much easier time. We're just using apps. We don't deal with like this, these uh, silly, you know, infrastructure level things this is something uh what you just mentioned in the end uh not to do any unjust to all the other things you said but uh, this is something that really resonated with me that it doesn't really matter what you're paying in the network the system will figure out how you can pay with it even though you won't like let's say you're paying something in eth but you don't have eth in your wallet you have usdc let's say uh with with a technology like hyperlane you could you could still process transactions with that. It reminds me of a, uh, <clears throat> this is coming a little bit left field, but it reminds me of a world tour I did, not a tour, just traveling with my girlfriend, now wife, mm-hmm. um, traveling the world. And I was using uh, Revolut, which back then was uh, the hot new fintech company. <laughs> and, and the way and the way they uh, promoted themselves, at least, was that you could, uh, with a Revolut account, you could spend in uh, any local currency, 60 different local currencies, um, from any wallet. So I had uh, euros in my uh, Revolut account. I had dollars and some third currency. 
And then I was traveling to Thailand and all kinds of places. And I was just paying, you know, in local Thai bet or whatever, um, withdrawing from my USDC, uh, US dollar uh, wallet or my euro wallet. I didn't even know what was happening underneath the hood. Exactly. exactly. And that's, that's something that, I mean, that would be super cool to, uh, when we get to that day. Um, and if that's in five years, I mean, that, I would look forward to that day. I, I got a little surprise for you. That day is already today. Um, so today, when you use Hyperlane to say initiate uh, a transaction from say ETH to Arbitrum or soon ETH to Osmosis, hmm. you don't need to have the Osmo in your wallet. So right now, it's not as perfect as that Revolut experience was, where it really didn't matter. Right now, it's kind of like you know, it's a halfway step there, where you only need the currency of the place you're initiating from and hyperlane handles the rest and the next step will be to really make it as seamless as the way you describe it because like how magic how nice was it that you just you knew you had the funds to pay for the things you wanted right it wasn't like stuff was coming out of thin air you had it but you didn't have to be bothered with like exchange rates and changing you're just like hey thank you revolut handle this for me I just, you know, I know I have money at home somewhere in an account. And this person here needs bot. But next week, someone's going to need, you know, like a Turkish lira. And next week, someone's going to need euros. And I don't have to think about it. And we have to get there with crypto. Uh, it just, it can't, it, crypto is very cumbersome right now. And I think yeah. generally, a lot of us, like, we've done well through our time in crypto. So we kind of forgive a lot of it's like, hmm. you know rough experience and we're just like ah, it's gonna get better like it's not gonna get better by magic someone has to do it uh so that's what we're exactly trying to and that's typically how technology works right i mean the greatest technology falls in the background but to get there it takes a lot of fucking work from a lot of <laughs> yeah. engineers a lot of designers a lot of people to actually make that happen but once we get there it's there right it's just almost almost like knowledge you know once we acquire the knowledge then you know it becomes almost a daily sort of yeah it's just there right exactly but right. Um, but to get there in the first place it takes a lot of fucking work <laughs> but john exactly. you uh you've been super generous with your time and uh what a uh, a load of information um so much stuff going on with hyperlane it's uh yeah, I'm uh, even more excited uh, now uh, than I was an hour ago when I, when we first started talking. It's really exciting what you guys are building, I think. So how can the community engage with you guys? I'm sure you're, you're getting feedback these days. Like, How do people yeah. get engaged from the Cosmos Club? So I'd say the best thing, join our Discord. Come just become a part of this community. If you're interested, if you found this fun um what we've seen and that's been really amazing for us because a lot of people ask like how can i contribute as a non-engineer well we are about to start sometime in the next really like three four weeks i guess i should have mentioned this earlier we're about to start um a program to help people get involved with hyperlane when they're not engineers right because like what if you're someone like me a few years ago and you want to support this thing that you think is cool how can you do that and so we're going to have this program. It's going to get you up to speed on the latest and greatest with Hyperlane. And then you can go out and just be like an effective force in communicating this thing. Because that five-year vision that I described, it's not going to happen if people don't know about Hyperlane. So that's really one of the 
you know, key things um, that we have to work on. So mm. join our Discord, just come and participate, ask all the questions you want, we'll be there to answer. Uh, we're going to be hosting regular office hours, we're going to start this, um, this kind of like educational program, you know, think of it kind of like joining a Hyperland Academy of, of sorts. Um, and that's probably the best way for now. Beautiful. John, it's been a true pleasure. And uh, I'm sure this is not the last time that we hear from you here at the club. So uh, thank you I'll so much for coming on today. Time. Thank you. Thank you. Great, John. Take care, man. You do the same. Ciao.